You're listening to a Centro Church podcast. It's good to be with you on this Good Friday morning, wherever you are across our city and in parts beyond. Good Friday is one of the high holy days on our Christian calendar, and it's important that we remember the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that's what we're going to do this morning. Right now in Jerusalem, it's Passover week. It's the full moon, and that signifies the start of the Passover. And in this corresponding week, thousands of years ago, Jesus was in Jerusalem. A day or two before he was arrested and ultimately crucified, he makes this statement in the book of John, in John chapter 12 and verse 27. He says this, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Now is my soul troubled. Jesus is troubled in his soul, and rightly so. He knows what lies ahead. Jesus had been in the city for a couple of days. The previous Sunday, what we now know as Palm Sunday, he arrived in a procession. It was a big deal. He rode in on a donkey's foal, and all the people put palm leaves down, and they shouted Hosanna, which means save now. But there were two processions into Jerusalem in the time leading up to Passover, and they were vastly different in their nature and motivation. One came to the city from the west, from Caesarea, which means Caesar City. It was a Roman procession led by the Roman prefect of Judea, Pontius Pilate. He rode in on a a battle-hardened stallion with a military entourage, just reminding the Judean people that they were still under the domination and control of Rome. Pilate rides into Jerusalem with a show of power and war and domination. But the other procession had come a long way too, all the way from Galilee. But it comes with a a different flavour, a different vibe. The leader of this procession is a is a rabbi. It's Jesus, not riding a stallion. He's riding a donkey. And instead of war and domination. This procession comes from the east over the Mount of Olives and down into the city with peace and and healing in its train. Jesus had just come from Jericho where he had an encounter with a, a blind man called Bartimaeus and we all know what happens there. Jesus heals him and that's what Jesus brings to town on that day. And we know how the story ends. That's why we have Good Friday. It ends with a, a cruel public execution. Jesus is nailed to a cross. But what if that wasn't the end result of the day? What if instead of a crucifixion of a leader of a religious sect, that it was actually the coronation of a king, a a king whose kingdom is not of this world, but a king nonetheless? The goal of Jesus' ministry was to inaugurate the kingdom of God. And that kingdom has to have a king. Jesus was the kingdom of God in person. The Jewish poet 
Zechariah. He started hinting at this 400 years before it actually happened. He wrote this about Jesus coming to town that, that Palm Sunday. He says in Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is how the Messiah or the king would arrive. This morning, we're going to take a short journey with Jesus to three different places that all hold significance on that day. The first place happens on the Thursday night. The place is Gethsemane. Jesus has just eaten a Passover meal in a borrowed room with his disciples. And then later that evening, they head out to a garden called Gethsemane. In the Bible, it tells us that uh, they went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, would you wait with me? Sit here while I pray. And then he took Peter and James and John, his inner circle, with him. And they went out a little bit away from the other disciples. And Jesus began to pray and he began to get distressed. He said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And he asked his disciples to watch with him. And going a little bit further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. He said, Father, anything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, but yet not what I will, but what you will. He comes to the point of saying, Father, not my will, but yours. He doesn't start from there, but he gets to there. At first, Jesus is asking if the Father can take the cup from him. But then he arrives at a point where he puts his trust in God the Father. What he's actually saying is, I'm putting my hope in you and the way that you work things out. Whatever you come up with, I'm in. See, although Jesus doesn't get the answer he wants, the matter is settled in his heart. He ends up at a point of trust. So Jesus, knowing what's coming, gets up and his heart is set. And most of us know the story from there. The disciples forget about him. They go to sleep. His other disciple, who's not there, Judas, who betrays him, brings a host of temple soldiers and Jesus is arrested and then comes to his trial. Jesus is beginning to experience the full range of emotional pain, starting with rejection and betrayal, but it gets worse. So let's move on to the next place. The second place is a place called Gabbatha. You may not have heard of Gabbatha, but it is actually a place of trial and judgment. The Gabbatha is an elevated platform in front of the fortress of Antonia. That's where Pilate lives when he comes to Jerusalem. It's right beside the temple. It towers over the temple. So just to remind the, the people of Jerusalem that Rome is in charge, they build a building that towers over the temple. And the accused would stand on that platform called the Gabbatha and they would be sentenced by Pilate. But maybe Instead of being a place of judgment, today this was to be a place of coronation. But before Jesus faces Pilate, he comes up against other powers. In fact, on that morning, he would face Caiaphas, the high priest, who represents the religious system. He would come across Herod, 
who represents the political system, and finally, he would be judged by Pilate, the Roman prefect, representing the military dominance, the military apparatus of occupation, representing, in fact, the demonic. Now, I want you to get this. Jesus, before he is crucified, will have to stand before all three of these representatives of principalities and powers. And all three, at some moment, in their own way, somehow or another, whether by accident or by design, whether by intent or not, they will all three proclaim him king. The first is Caiaphas. He's the high priest. He hates Jesus. Jesus is a threat to him. And he conducts a trial in front of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish court. They call witnesses, but they can't get their stories to gel. And finally, Caiaphas puts Jesus under oath and he says to him, I'm commanding you in the name of the living God. May he judge you if you don't tell the truth. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Tell us if you, in fact, are the King. Jesus replied to him, you have said so. That's one. So the members of the Sanhedrin start hitting him and punching him and they say to him, prophesy to us, king. They actually call him king. Now next, they take him to Pilate, but it's early in the morning, so Pilate's not delighted. But he is when he finds out that Jesus is a Galilean because that comes under Herod's jurisdiction. And so he says, off you go to Herod. So Jesus is taken to Herod in his palace. Now, Herod has been waiting to meet Jesus. He likes these religious types. He likes a good preach. But what he really wants is a miracle. He wants Jesus to do some sort of trick. Prove to me that you're divine. Change my water into wine. That's all you need do. Then I'll know it's all true. Come on, King of the Jews, if it's appropriate to quote Andrew Lloyd Webber on Good Friday. That's from Jesus Christ Superstar. But Jesus says nothing says nothing at all, doesn't even answer Herod. So Herod is about to send him back to Pilate. And then he, he stops and he says, wait, you're, you're a king. You're supposed to be dressed like a king. So he calls for one of his kingly robes and he places it on Jesus and sends him back to Pilate dressed like a king. That's two. Now, Pilate, Jesus comes back to him. Pilate really wants to let him go. But he misreads the crowd. He misreads the moment. And in the end, he gives in to the chief priests and he sends Jesus down to the barracks for a scourging. Now, the praetorium guard don't muck around when they scourge someone. When they whip someone, they whip them to within an inch of their life. And sometimes vital organs, arteries and bones are exposed by the actual whipping that they give him. And that's what happens with Jesus. But they too dress him in a kingly robe and say, say to him, Hail, King of the Jews. And Pilate brings him out. And what does he say to the people? He says exactly the same thing that Zechariah said 400 years before. He says, Behold your king. And of course, when Jesus is crucified, Pilate places a sign on the cross that says, this is the king of the Jews, and he refuses to remove it. So all three of those powers have proclaimed Jesus king in some way or another. Sure, some of it's done in mockery, but who was actually being mocked? 
Can we look at Jesus in his humiliation and see his glory? The book of Colossians in chapter 2 and verse 15 says, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing, triumphing over them by the cross. In the same way that Jesus wins a moral victory over the powers of his time, he wins a victory over the powers which hold mankind in bondage. Sin, death and the devil. The dark forces and rogue entities that are at large in this earth, they seem to be in control of our lives. But because of the cross, those forces are disarmed. They are powerless. They're defeated, even to the point of them being humiliated. So the good news for us is that we're not trapped. We don't have to live under a shadow with addictions, out-of-control behaviour and life-controlling problems. The power has been gifted to us to step out of that. And so Jesus moves to the next place. He's sentenced to death and he goes to a place called Golgotha, an old quarry, the place of the skull. They took him to Golgotha and they crucified him, a means of execution so horrible that the Bible doesn't go into it. It just says they crucified him there. All the collective sins of the human race became one singular thing. All the sins became sin and it was born and forgiven by Jesus on the cross. He experienced the full extent of humanness in that he finally experienced death, the mortality, and he enters into the final frontier of the human condition. And so after he died, they took the body, trying to do this quickly before Passover, and they put the body in a tomb. Jesus has been from Gethsemane to Gabbatha to Golgotha. The next place, the next step on the journey is where he should have gone but didn't, and that's important, and that is a place called Gehenna. It's actually the Valley of Gehenna, and Jesus doesn't go there. It's important that he doesn't go there. This word, is Gehenna, is often translated in the New Testament as hell because it was a kind of a hellish place just outside the city of Jerusalem. It was kind of a garbage dump where they put all rotting garbage. There were rats. It was a horrible place. It stunk. And that's where Rome would dump the bodies of executed prisoners. They would just dump them there so no one could mourn them. It would be as if they didn't exist. They would just dump the bodies there and the bodies would rot and the place smelt. There was continuous fire burning everything up. It was where we actually get a vision of hell from. And it's important that Jesus didn't go there. It was important that he was in a sealed tomb because if he had risen from the dead in Gehenna and just walked back into town, it would have been remarkable, but it would have been explainable. People could have said, well, he wasn't just dead, but he was actually put in a sealed tomb, courtesy of someone who admired him called Joseph of Arimathea, who lent them his tomb to put Jesus in. And he was put in that tomb. It was sealed up and no one, was waiting outside of the tomb for him to rise from the dead, not even his mother. And so that's where we leave it for today. Jesus is in the tomb, and we'll let Pastor John deal with what happens after that on Sunday morning. But what does that mean for us? I want to actually read a scripture to you from the book of Romans. 
It's an important scripture, but it sums up the whole of what happened on Good Friday and what it means for us as followers of Jesus. It's the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 1 we'll start with, and it's in the message translation. It says this, With the arrival of Jesus the Messiah, that fateful dilemma is resolved. Those who enter into Christ being here for us no longer have to live under a continuous low-lying black cloud. A new power is in operation. The spirit of life in Christ, like a strong wind, has magnificently cleared the air, freeing you from a fated lifetime of brutal tyranny at the hands of sin and death. Verse 3, God went for the jugular when he sent his own son. He didn't deal with the problem as something remote and unimportant. In his son, Jesus, he personally took on the human condition, entered the disordered mess of struggling humanity in order to set it right once and for all. See, the condition that we were in required extreme measures. Our sin, it's not the bad things that we do, it's the condition that we're in. It's like a disease, it's like an addiction. More than the things I do, it's the state that has gripped me. And that multiplied by countless number of humans added to the rule of the kingdom of darkness, that couldn't be dealt with by some glib application of the human will. This couldn't be solved politically, socially, psychologically by our own efforts. Something awful had to happen that matches the awfulness of the condition that we're in. The Son of God moved into the limits of our dysfunction to encounter the awfulness of the cross. The awfulness of the cross is the only legitimate counterweight to the awfulness of sin. And anything less than that is not taking sin with requisite seriousness. At this point, I'd like us to come around the communion table. If you've got some emblems there, then get them out ready. I just want to share a thought before we, we come around and, and partake of the emblems together. I have a habit of, since we're talking about a coronation, I have a habit of watching a series on Netflix called The Crown. It's about the royal family. And early on in the episode list, there is one episode about the coronation of Queen Elizabeth. And it's, it's an outstanding episode. It, it shows the young queen and her, on the day of her crowning, how she arrives, all the ceremony and pomp that goes with the coronation. They play the coronation hymn, Zadok the Priest by Handel. It's a, it's a, a stunning tune, very much uh, a ceremonial tune for coronations of monarchs of the UK. And there's this moment in the coronation where the Archbishop of Canterbury takes the crown and he places it on her head and then he steps back and he raises his hands in the air and all the princes and princesses and peers and peeresses in the congregation take their own crowns and place them on their head at that same moment. And, and I just I saw a picture in that, that in that very first passage that we read where Jesus said, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. When he is lifted up and crowned, the day of his crucifixion, but not a crucifixion, a coronation, he draws us to himself. And that, 
something of that royalty that he has in being a king is released to us. There is a transference of royal identity to us. St. Peter picked up on this theme when he wrote his letter to God's elect. He called us the sacerdotium regale, the royal priesthood. It says in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Yes, it was a crucifixion, but more than that, it was the coronation of a king. And in the crowning of that king, we find ourselves as partakers in his royalty. We get identity, we get mission, we become a royal priesthood and we get to deliver the kingdom of God in this life. And so we hold these emblems, not to weep over Jesus' death, but to celebrate that a king has been crowned and by association we become royalty too. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for what Good Friday means. We thank you that you sent your precious son who was without sin and made him to be sin for us and that by his stripes we are healed today. Father, we thank you that these emblems that we hold in his hand represent our redemption. We thank you, Lord God, that we can be partakers in that redemption and also that we can be partakers in a royal priesthood, that by association with Jesus we become royalty too. And we thank you for that today. In Jesus' name, let's eat and drink together. Thank you for listening to this podcast.